I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Indiana. Indiana, the Hoosier State. Is that what it's called? Yes, the Hoosier State. What does that even mean? That one and the Show Me State. Is it Missouri? I think that's Missouri. Always confuse me. I'm just like, why? Why? Just like the Volunteer State, but now we know why. So maybe when we get to Missouri, we can figure out why it's the Show Me State. Yeah, yeah. Apparently nobody knows exactly where the term Hoosier came from. Huh. There was once a poem called The Hoosier's Nest. That's where people think it may have come from. But it was published in the Indiana Journal. So I'm like, oh, okay. I always thought it had something to do with corn, but I think I'm thinking of Huskers. Maybe, which yeah. Which is like a, it's not like a, a university team. I think maybe. I don't know. Anyway. I don't know my Indiana very well. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. I learned some stuff about Indiana this week, though. Um, So did I. Yeah? From doing these notes. Cool, cool. I, I have some great uh, fun facts for you, too. Oh, all right. Hit me with them. So the state motto for Indiana is Crossroads of America. Okay. Uh, I guess the whole state adopted it in 1937, uh, even though it was originally a nickname for Indianapolis, because there was a bunch of interstate highways that met in Indianapolis. So Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of corn, we all know farming is huge in Indi- Indiana, huge part of their economy. I found out that apparently not only is Indo- Indiana one of the top corn producing states in the U.S., but... It produces an estimated 20% of the country's popcorn kernel supply. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I was like, popcorn kernels. I bought some unfortunate popcorn. Is that the brand name? Unfortunate popcorn. No. uh, it's Leave it in the microwave a second too long, it'll burn. It's unfortunate. No, that that wasn't even it. Well, I mean, half the the kernels didn't even pop. But um, (laughs) it was the Lidl's brand one. Oh. And normally I like their stuff. I think they're pretty good. This was just... Ugh, ugh, gross, disgusting, and I will never buy it again. It might have been sale. That's what happens when popcorn gets old. Maybe. I just, it even looked weird. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a shame, a shame. Yeah, I'm sorry. Continue with your fun facts. Oh, that's okay. Got me sidetracked with popcorn. <laughs> One of my favorite and least favorite snacks, because I love the way it tastes, and it's not really bad for you, but if the freaking kernels get stuck in your teeth, uh, yep. yeah. Ugh. The worst, but best. I agree. Uh, Indiana is home to nearly 100 historic covered bridges, and apparently Park County, Indiana, is known as the Covered Bridge Capital, since 31 of these bridges are located in the county. That one I actually did know. Wow. Huh. Although, extra fun fact, our home state of Pennsylvania is actually has the most covered bridges in the country, with 224. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I didn't know that either. All right, We in- do have a lot of covered bridges, though. I know. All right, Eden, I'm going to read a list of people, and I want you to tell me what they all have in common. Okay. Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Adam Lambert, Cole Porter, John Mellencamp, David Lee Roth, Axl Rose, Red Skelton, Mike Epps, David Letterman, Jim Gaffigan, Florence Henderson, Greg Kinnear, Shelley Long, James Dean, Adam Driver, Carol Lombard, Steve McQueen, Larry Bird, Theodore Dreiser, Kurt Vonnegut, Jane Pauley, Ernie Pyle, Madam C.J. Walker, Orville Redenbacher, speaking of popcorn, hey, yeah, and Colonel Harlan Sanders of KFC fame. Were they all born in Indiana? They were! They were all from Indiana. First I was like, they're all singers, and then you got to ones that weren't singers. That was part of my trickiness. But yeah, apparently... Or actually, when you first started, I was like, they're all Jacksons. They're all Jacksons. <laughs> 
But yeah, Indiana has produced a lot of famous people over the years. It also has produced a lot of vice presidents as well. One of its nicknames is the Mother of Vice Presidents. So I thought that was interesting. Okay. I prefer the Mother of Dragons, but you know. I mean, who doesn't? Okay, one more fun fact for today. And hopefully it'll put us in the correct true crime mood for our episode. Okay. The very first moving train robbery took place in Jackson County, Indiana. You might think, moving train robbery, big whoop. But I guess before this happened, most trains were robbed at a station. And it made it super risky to be a train robber because you're stationary, so you could get caught very easily. Yeah. On October 6, 1866, the Reno Brothers gang boarded a Mississippi and Ohio railway train as it started to leave Seymour, Indiana. The train traveled through Jackson County, and as it was traveling, the gang busted their way into the express car, tied up the guard, and broke into the onboard safe. Before they jumped from the train, taking the loot with them, they managed to grab about $16,000, which would be about $500,000 today. Wow. Yeah, so train robbering, a fine Indiana pastime. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Those are my fun facts for Indiana. Nice. I do have a story for you. Oh, excellent. And it might be one that some of you guys have heard, um, but it's too good not to do a story on. So my story this week takes place in Westfield, Indiana, and is a majorly weird case that's pretty well known but I just couldn't resist telling it. Westfield is in Hamilton County and is part of the Indianapolis metropolitan area. As of 2019, it has an estimated population of 43,649 residents and is around 31 square miles, so it's pretty big. It was founded in 1834 and may have been planned as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Hmm. It was founded by Quakers from North Carolina, and although they weren't as progressive with LGBTQ rights, they were certainly huge proponents for the abolition of slavery. There are plenty of things to do in the city that's this size. You can get your drank on at Urban Vines Winery and Brewery, which is cool because if you love beer and your friend only drinks wine, you can still go together. Sounds like the perfect double date place. You can pick some pumpkins at Stucky Farms Orchard and Cider Mill. I, I love a good cider mill. It's always fun to get that oh, fresh pressed cider. I love cider. I know. So good. Hot, cold, doesn't matter. I mm-hmm. want it. Give it to me. Definitely a place to check out if you love fall activities. So calling all you basic bitches out there. <laughs> get hope. your Uggs. Get your vest. We going. <laughs> yeah. You're just going to go on your pumpkin spice we're heading, tour. <laughs> we're heading to Stucky's. Um, I do love fall, though, too, so I might be a little bit of a basic bitch. So you can go for a walk on the rail trail in um, Monon Trail. Monon, I think is how it's pronounced. Monon. Okay. But um, it stretches through a good chunk of Indiana and is apparently the safest place to take a walk in the Indianapolis area. Uh, I can believe that. Yeah, I know. It's pretty crime-ridden Indianapolis, but... Also, too, from from my travels in Indiana, there aren't many sidewalks. Yeah. It's very odd. Like, that was one thing I noticed, and it made me nervous because we were walking places. I think that's to deter some of the crime. Like, they want to keep... Because that's what they did in, I want to say, Copley or somewhere. Hmm. Interesting. Um, They took away, like, a lot of the sidewalks. So that way people were discouraged from walking around town. Wow. Yeah. Or you could just, you know, 
have more community policing. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Or you can go over to nearby Morse Park and Beach for fishing and swimming, but just make sure to check because swimming is only allowed at certain times. Okay. If you're in the LGBTQ community, you may want to refrain from going to a gay bar, however, or you might just run into the subject of today's story, Herb Baumeister. <gasps> Herb. Do you know who that I is? I don't know much about it, but I, I am familiar with it just from looking for my own for story. true crime story. Yeah. yeah. It's it's insane. Um, completely insane. So scratch that last part, listeners, because Herb died in 1996, so you should be safe now. But we'll get to that a little later. Let's start instead at the beginning of his life. Herb Baumeister was born on April 7, 1947 in Indianapolis to parents Herbert, an anesthesiologist, and Elizabeth Baumeister, who was a stay-at-home mom. He was the oldest of four children and by all accounts had a very normal upbringing. So no abuse, no like anything of that nature. So what? So not the usual things we see with somebody. With serial killers. Yeah. Correct. However, like most serial killers and most of my exes, by the time he reached adolescence, he began showing the telltale signs of antisocial personality disorder. <laughs> Our favorite. Okay, so technically my favorite personality disorder is histrionic personality disorder, but we'll just go with antisocial for the sake of the podcast. Although now I'm sure that curious listeners are out there wondering what histrionic personality disorder is. Doesn't that mean your uterus just won't stay put? No. Oh, that's hysteria. <laughs> so, this one. Um, it's actually said that a lot of actors have histrionic personality disorder. Um it's pretty much like being a Leo, in my opinion. <laughs> Sorry, Leos. A person with histrionic personality disorder loves to be the center of attention. They constantly seek approval. They tend to be exhibitionists, and their emotional states shift dramatically depending on how they feel they can get attention. Gotcha. So again, sorry to all the Leos out there. I know that was a low blow, guys. I still love you. <laughs> anyway. Histrionic personality disorder actually does have features that overlap with antisocial behavior as well, so it's not far off the mark from today's story. Gotcha. So anyway, back to Herb. You may wonder what these signs of antisocial personalities were. Yeah, totally. Well, he would be found sometimes playing with dead animals, which I'm assuming he probably killed some of them himself, but that's strictly conjecture on my part, so don't quote me on that because hmm. I don't have anything to back that up. Um, but they would see him playing with dead animals. Um, people also said he once peed on a teacher's desk. Keep it in the toilet where it belongs, Herb. I mean, that is definitely not the way to become a teacher's pet. No, not at all. I mean, that's the kind of shit that you reserve for substitutes. Come on. I know. That's good clean fun when it's a substitute teacher. <laughs> well, not clean fun. Not clean. Uh, so he seems to have a thing for teachers or maybe one teacher because he also found a dead crow on the side of the road and put it in his on his teacher's desk as well. Gross. That is not the equivalent of an apple. No, not even close. You can't eat an apple. Oh, gross. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> So another source said that he had a, quote, macabre sense of humor, end quote, which 
if that's a bad thing, I think anyone who listens to this podcast is in trouble. So And also ourselves included. And ourselves, definitely. Loving that dark humor. He wasn't quite done being diagnosed yet, though. And he was also diagnosed with schizophrenia in his teens. Ooh, that's really tough. Yeah. I think people generally know what schizophrenia is, but I'll explain it still because others get it confused with dissociative identity disorder, which a different source said that he also had, but I only found that in one place. Gotcha. Um, schizophrenia is a psychosis. It's a break with reality, which comes in the form of very real hallucinations, whether they be visual audio, olfactory, and so on. Um, Hearing voices is a common symptom. Paranoia is also another huge associated trait. From what I could find, it sounds like Herb was never treated for these conditions, which makes you wonder if things would have turned out differently if he had been. Mostly back then, the treatment for such a thing was electric shock. Oh, yeah, and that's not really... Which... Some people swear by it. When I worked mental health, there was a woman that I was in charge of who she went and got ECT all the time, and she loved it. She felt so much better afterwards. But it does seem, when you see it, it seems torturous. Yeah. I would definitely not want it done ever, no matter what. But I hear it does help. And like I said, I also knew someone that swore by their lobotomy, so... Yeah, I mean... Teach their own. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sure it helps some folks, but it shouldn't be something that necessarily would be the first line of treatment. Yeah. Despite his various mental illnesses, Bellmeister did end up attending college at Indiana University, but he dropped out after only one semester in 1965. He did return to school, however, in 1967 for one more semester and then went on to go to Butler University in 1972, again for only one semester. Giving it the old college try for sure. For one semester. I mean, that is the old college try. Is that what that is? Yes. All right. <laughs> At least in my book. He gave it a try. It didn't work out. Good for you. <laughs> now, not knowing this guy is allegedly a serial killer, and I say allegedly because he was never tried for these crimes, so for legal reasons, we have to say allegedly. What he studied in college wouldn't seem alarming for the average person, but knowing he was most likely, you know, a serial killer. It's a little creepy. He studied anatomy. Ooh, that is creepy in retrospect. See, it has a different ring to it when an alleged serial killer is involved. Mm. You get these Norman Bates vibes and it's just not good. For sure. The only worst thing is taxidermy, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Which seemed right up his alley with all these dead animals he was playing with. So... He got married in 1971 to a woman by the name of Julie Sater, whom he met at Indiana University, where she was a part-time student while she taught high school journalism, and they had three children together. She must have been a relatively fertile woman because later she was quoted as saying that they only ever had sex six times throughout their 25 years of marriage. Oh my. Yeah. So, I mean, 50-50 shot for her. I mean, it's strictly for procreation, Eden. Yeah, I guess. Was he Catholic? Um, He was probably gay. Oh, same difference. No, just kidding. Same difference. Well, (laughs) I think there's a big one, but okay. Um, At some point in the 70s, Herb was confined to a mental hospital by his father, and his wife said he was, quote, hurting and needed some help, end quote. He was an inpatient there for two months. 
As far as jobs go, he had a number of them. Herb seemed to be a good worker, but his co-workers said he exhibited a lot of strange behaviors. He also founded a chain of thrift stores in Indianapolis called Save-A-Lot, with two stores in total. I feel like that's different from the other Save-A-Lot yeah, stores that we Yeah, because we had a Save-A-Lot around here, but it was a grocery, like a yeah. cheaper grocery okay, store. Okay, cool, cool. It's different. All right, good. Good to know. Yeah, don't worry. You never spent money at one of his stores. Okay, I try to use my dollars and my spending power for good, positive things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So his work life kind of goes back to what I said about histrionic personality disorder, oddly enough. Really? Uh, even though he wasn't diagnosed with that. When working a few low-level jobs around town, it was said that he was constantly striving for the acceptance from coworkers and supervisors and would be quite obvious about how upset he was when he didn't get it. He was also said to be pushy, rude, and bossy to his coworkers, emulating what he thought a supervisor should be like. Mm. So that is pretty much like histrionic personality disorder. Yeah. Um, as for the two jobs, I know he definitely worked. He was employed at the Indianapolis Star and later the BMV, which I guess is the DMV, but in Indiana. Gotcha. He did a few weird things, like send a Christmas card to everyone at work featuring him and another man in drag for absolutely no reason. I mean, I would find that delightful. Yeah, but... But, yeah, it's kind of weird if it's from your coworker who has, like, is this this a weird wife guy and a bunch that, of kids. <laughs> and the weird guy that you just don't really care for. It just kind of <laughs> adds to the creepy level then. When normally it'd be like, oh, that's funny or that's cool or whatever, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. not with him. This was, of course seen as something quite shameful in the 70s, and rumors started flying that he might be in the closet. What a surprise, considering he sent that card out. Like, oh, I, Isn't it weird? No, not weird at all for Herb. <laughs> so despite his weird behavior and how unliked he was by his coworkers, he did get promoted at one job to program director. I think that was at the, the whatever I called it, not the DMV. Oh, the, the B- BMV? Oh, it was BMV, yep. But he was fired from the position in less than a year because they found out he peed on a letter to Robert D. Orr, who was the governor of Indiana at the time. And to make matters worse, this kind of told everyone who was responsible for something else that had happened four months before this. Someone, <coughs> uh, Herb, um, peed on the manager's desk. Again with the desk peeing. I know. I don't get it. But he loves his desk peeing. <sighs> He was so into golden showers, I bet. Uh, Yeah, I think so. He should talk to our president. (laughs) Um, So after this, he became a stay-at-home dad. His wife had actually quit her own job prior to this to make, you know, take care of the kids. Right. Typical homemaker situation. Three children. um, But she had to go back to work after that. This is when things started to go majorly downhill. Herb, I guess, wasn't used to having so much free time on his hands, and to fill that time, he began drinking frequently and going to local gay bars. In 1985, Herb was actually charged in a hit-and-run accident where he was driving drunk, but the laws weren't what they are today, and he basically got a slap on the wrist for it. That's crazy. Yep, because that's how it was back then. It was like, oh, you killed someone when you were drunk. Oh, that's fine. Just don't do it again. Yeah, it's kind of funny, too, because you think about like how prevalent organizations where like mad like mothers against drunk driving and all of that stuff well i'm sure that's what got the laws changed yeah exactly um so only six months after he ended up stealing his friend's car and was charged with conspiracy to commit theft uh but those charges also didn't go anywhere 
Herb, what is going on, buddy? Yeah. I just I, I don't get it. But he, herbs will be herbs, I guess. Herb's gonna herb. Herb's gonna do what a herb's gonna do. <laughs> um so he ended up taking a few more jobs after this and even started working at a thrift store, which seemed to be where he got the idea to open his own from. He was able to do so after borrowing money from his mom. His dad had died by this point. I should mention that as well. Um, I don't know from what, though. Okay. Probably natural causes of some sort. Heart attack, maybe. I don't know. So I'll give him props for this next part. The thrift store did so well that within the first year, he was able to open the second location and the family got rich off this business, which is when in 1991, they bought Herb's little house of horrors called Fox Hollow Farms. Now, I want everyone listening to this podcast to go ahead and Google Fox Hollow Farms because this place is really nice. It was an 18-acre horse ranch. It had plenty of room, which was perfect for his family, and was just far enough away from everyone so no one would hear his future victims scream. Oh, Jesus, Eden. Yeah, things really seemed to be looking up for Herb and his family. He had been living paycheck to paycheck for so long, and now they owned this mansion of a house. They had so much money that they decided to start giving to charity, which is always nice. Unfortunately, even though he had a good marriage up until this point, Herb and Juliana started to have marital issues. Uh, They never were really apart since they lived and worked together now, since she was also helping with the business. Mm. A lot more stressed. Oh, yeah. Because even if you love someone, you need time apart. That's also like how he treated her as well when she was working there. He just treated her like the help. She wasn't his wife. She wasn't his partner. She was Mm. an employee. They ended up in a pattern of separation and getting back together for some time. Um, also, the beautiful home that they had bought together was starting to get not so beautiful. With the busy life of owning two stores and having kids, cleaning wasn't high up on the priority list, and the grass became overgrown, and the house was in constant shambles. Hire somebody for that. I know, right? You have enough money. Exactly. Uh, so apparently, the only part of the house that was kept clean and stocked was the pool room, which had a wet bar. Juliana and the kids started staying with Herb's mother in her condo a fair amount of the time, while Herb stayed at the house by himself. Things started to get a little weird in 1994 when their son Eric, who was 13 at the time, was playing near the woods on their property and came across a buried skeleton. Oh. Yeah. He showed it to his mom because, you know, Eric was a good boy. And Juliana showed it to Herb, and Herb told her, oh, yeah, my dad uses skeletons all the time for research. I found that while cleaning the garage and just decided to bury it. What? Yeah. For whatever reason, maybe she was in denial. I don't know, but she believed him was pretty much just like, sounds legit. Cool. That's what he went with? I mean, not to say that I've thought about this, but if I was in that situation, I'd be like, okay, honey, I'll take care of this. I'm going to call the authorities. Exactly. Yeah. And they should be like, yeah, they came out and they took the body. Well, you were at mom's. Exactly. Yes. So you could still get away with it. But yeah. But no, he's just like, it was my dad's. I thought it'd be funny. I buried it. Herb started to decline again and began drinking during the day now. 
and was just very rude to his employees and even to the customers now. Mm-mm. His stores were always said to be very neat, but now they were starting to look as crappy as his house. Uh, the stores were also starting to lose money as well. Uh-oh. At this point, Herb's already not-so-great mental state went into even more of a decline, and he was going to gay bars frequently, then coming back to his pool and crying at night. That's really sad. It is sad, but it's not so sad when you learn about all the things he's done. Um, so around this time, an investigation was taking place where people were on the lookout for someone called the I-70 Strangler. Oh. I don't know if he had that name at the time or if it was later, but around the same time. This person, again, cough, cough, Herb, had been killing people and leaving their bodies along I-70 in Indiana and Ohio. I'm not saying this was entirely the reason the police weren't finding the I-70 Strangler, but this was the 90s and victims, all the victims were gay men. So that sort of thing wasn't really high on anyone's priority list at the time because we were still very much second-class citizens then. I mean, they were asking for it. We all saw that movie Cruising. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a private investigator and former sheriff, Keith Mars. Oh, I mean, Virgil Vandegrift. (laughs) I was like, really? His name's Keith? Oh. No, it's just because he's a private investigator and former sheriff. (laughs) Um, So Virgil Vandegrift had... Two mothers whose sons had gone missing asked for his services. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a 28-year-old man named Alan um, Broussard while going to meet his boyfriend at a gay bar called Brothers. Not to be confused with Philadelphia's sisters. Rest in peace. Oh, it's not there anymore? No. Oh. The other was named Roger Goodlett, and he was 32. So they were around the same age range and only four years apart. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been last seen on his way to a gay bar in Indianapolis, but he never made it there. Okay, interesting. So Vandegrip went to work posting missing persons flyers around the areas of the bars and also began talking to a few people and was able to find out that Roger Goodlett was last seen getting into a blue car with Ohio plates. He even got a call from a gay publication telling him about other disappearances of gay men going back for the past few years. What? Yep. So they only started to really track this uh, strangler case, Interstate Highway, what was it, 70? It was um, I-70, I think. Yeah, I-70. So they only started tracking this killer's case recently, but it turns out people have been missing from the local gay bars for years now. For years, yep, and no one did anything about it. Wow. Because like I said, you're just not important, Mm -hmm. you know? Here's where I will explain why I said what I said about no one caring about the disappearances and murders of gay men in the area. Vandegrift talked with police about what he had found out, thinking that, you know, there might be a possible serial killer. And they brushed him off saying they probably just ran off to, quote, practice their lifestyles. Fuck you, buddy. Yeah, um, okay. I can't even, I can't even deem that. I can't respond to that. They ran off to practice their lifestyles. Honestly, you don't need much practice at it. I mean, if I'm being completely honest. (laughs) Um, Just do what comes natural. (laughs) I know the Indianapolis area is huge and probably has, you know, a high crime rate, as most big cities do. But these are human lives, and the police didn't even think it was worth looking into. 
So that kind of, you know, rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Luckily, Ohio had their shit together a little more than Indiana did, and they were the ones that were currently looking for this I-70 Strangler from what I could find. The biggest piece of information we have about this came from a man only known as Tony. It's not his real name, but he wanted to remain anonymous, um, and he tells this crazy, crazy story. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, you need to buckle your seatbelt because it's 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 seriously crazy. Tony was friends with one of the other missing men, Roger Goodlett. He went out to a gay bar one night and noticed a man staring at one of the missing persons posters. He thought, okay, he seems really interested in Roger's picture. Maybe he knows something. Uh, maybe we should call him Eden instead of Tony because I'd put myself in the line of fire to solve a damn mystery too. My tombstone will probably read... Was killed by the same thing that killed the cat. Curiosity. (laughs) Well, Tony goes up to this man and introduces himself. The man tells him his name is Brian Smart. He also said he was a landscaper from Ohio. Tony decides to ask this guy about Roger, and he just became kind of evasive at that point. Mm. So he's just like, hey, do you know Roger? Blah, blah, blah. And he's, he's just like, kind of oh. like changing the subject, trying to not talk like, I'm about I'm from Ohio. It. So fake Brian, because that's not his real name either, and Tony talk for a while. And Brian says, hey, I'm doing some landscaping for the owners of this house. And they're away at the moment. Want to come back with me and take a swim in their pool? So Tony gets into the Buick with Ohio plates. Mm. And they go back to a place in Indianapolis, which Tony does not know the name of, but the way he described it sounded just like Fox Hollow Farms. He said there were lots of horse ranches and big houses in the area. He even said the home had a sign with the word farm in it and a split rail fence like Fox Hollow Farms had. The drive also took about 30 minutes, which is about the right amount of time from where they were as well. Okay. The house he went into with this man calling himself Brian was also a Tudor house. Um, Tony saw a bunch of boxes and furniture around the house, and they walked through. Uh, So basically, the place was, you know, just like a cluttered mess, just like Herb's house. Okay. They go into the pool area where fake Brian offers Tony a drink, which he declines because he's smart. Good for him. Tony looks around, and this pool room is just the creepiest fucking thing ever. There's all these mannequins standing around looking like they're having a pool party. They're all dressed in, like, swimsuits and sunglasses and hats and things like that. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, just a bunch of freaking mannequins hanging around the pool to make it look lively. Yeah, no shit. I would not take a drink at this creep-ass pool either. Not at all. I know I said I'd probably be murdered trying to solve one, but if I saw this, I think I'd run out. You're like, oh, I hear I hear someone calling for me. I got to go. Exactly. Yeah. I forgot. I have to work really early tomorrow. Yeah. I left my house um, on fire. I need to leave. Um, yeah. There's no way I'd be staying with all those freaking mannequins. So Brian leaves the room for a moment and when he comes back he's suddenly very gregarious and tony thinks great so this guy is probably on cocaine Mm. Uh, so obviously 
there seems to be a sexual motive at hand here. And Brian says to Tony, you know what's fun? Autoerotic asphyxiation. Want to give it a go? Wait, what? No, sir. Yeah. I do not. I would like a ride home, please. So Tony is just like, yeah, whatever floats your boat. Okay. So Brian. Yeah. What a brave ass motherfucker. I know. Brian disrobes and Tony starts strangling him with this hose while Brian jerks off. Okay. After this, Brian's like, okay, your turn. Not good. He seemed to think, well, I went this far. I guess there's no going back now. Um, and he lets Brian strangle him too. But he can tell pretty early on that Brian has no intention of stopping after he started to strangle him. Mm. Tony, fortunately, is one smart cookie and pretends to pass out. So Brian stops strangling him, and when Tony opens his eyes a little while later, Brian is very shocked. He has this big, like, <gasps> expression on his face uh, because he just assumed he had just killed Tony. Mm-hmm. So after that, he was pretty much like, oh, I was so worried about you. You <laughs> passed out. Are you okay? After this, Brian took Tony home, and to try to cover up the weirdness of this completely not, you know, his completely not dead prey essentially. Um, he says, this was fun. Let's do it again sometime. He never showed up to their next meeting. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. A after hearing this story, Vandegrift and Tony worked together to try and track down this mysterious Brian Smart. But after a year of looking, they couldn't find him. It had been dark that night, and Tony had been drunk and unfamiliar with the area, so it was hard to lead him back to the house. Mm -hmm. Luckily, Tony was still going to the gay bars in the Indianapolis area, and in 1995, was able to spot Brian again. <gasps> he went out to the parking lot and found the car he had rode in that night and wrote down the license plate number. Nice. Yeah, very smart. Vandegrift ran the plate, and guess who it was registered to? Hint, it wasn't a man named Brian Smart. Herb's gonna do what Herb's gonna do. Yup. So he reported these findings to the police, uh, and they do the right thing this time, and they go to search Herb's house, but he refuses and says, you know, for anything else, just talk to my lawyer. I'm not talking to you anymore. Right. Pretty typical for most people, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, They try to skate around this by going to his wife at the thrift store, but she also refused. She does ask Herb about it, and he denies any involvement, and she believes him, of course. The main detective on the case, Mary Wilson, tried to get a warrant to search the house, but was refused by officials in Hamilton County, saying that there wasn't enough evidence. Things were at a standstill after this until June of 1996, when Juliana Baumeister came to see Detective Wilson, telling her that not only was she divorcing Herb, but that he'd run their business into the freaking ground, they were filing for bankruptcy, and he was having some sort of breakdown. I think, but I'm not certain, that she told her about the skeleton in the backyard as well. Um, she gave Detective Wilson permission to search the house. So, they wait for Herb to leave, and it's just Juliana at the house. The kids were with Herb at their grandmother's condo, thank God, and Detective Mary Wilson and three other officers show up to conduct this search. You might have to buckle that seatbelt again. 
Oh, God. Is it more mannequins? No, not more mannequins. Oh, God. First off, they noticed something a little weird about the gravel in the yard. It just didn't look quite right. When they examined it, turned out to be charred little pieces of bones, which forensic testing showed to be human bone. Oh. Yeah, that's some Ed Gein level shit. Yes. Yeah, really freaking creepy. Talk about landscaping. I know. Mm. So he was landscaping. Um, over the period of the next few days, they began excavating the grounds because, you know, you've lined your yard with dead people parts. Um, that's the next logical step. Yeah. So they end up finding around 5,500 bone fragments and teeth, which were believed to belong to 11 different people, eight of which have been identified. And two of those were the names I had mentioned earlier that the private investigator was looking for. Wow. Herb had been staying with his mother while the search was going on. And luckily, when he was served with divorce papers, he did give the kids back. Uh, but once he caught wind that, you know, of what was happening. Yeah, the police had been to the house. They found the bone fragments and yeah. stuff. He quickly fled. And not just the state. He fled the country and went to Ontario, Canada. Mm. This is where he realized he'd rather die than go to prison and took his own life. He shot himself in the head with a three fifty seven Magnum. And his body was found by hikers. Wow. He did leave behind a note. However, it only cited his financial problems and failing marriage as reasons for suicide, not the people he murdered. Hmm. Although 11 people's remains were found on his property, he is suspected of killing 21 people. Wow. If you're at all somehow unconvinced that Herb Baumeister was in fact a serial killer, because I know we have to say allegedly, but come on now, I do have some more evidence. Okay, lay it on me. Not only did gay men stop disappearing at the same time Herb fled, but Juliana was also able to provide receipts showing Herb would have been traveling on I-70 around the times of the other murders. Also, the bodies along the highway stopped piling up as soon as they moved to Fox Hollow Farms, where Herb obviously, allegedly, found new ways of disposing of the bodies of his victims. Oh my god. A portion of the property was for sale in 2019, as some of the plots have been split up now, so it's, you know, because it's massive. Yeah, 18 acres is a lot. Yeah, so they're, they're splitting up the plots and selling them. In closing, I do want to add that Foxlow Farms has been investigated and is haunted as well, especially in the pool area. What a fucking shock. Yeah, right? The spirits are, of course, supposed to be those of Herb's victims. Hopefully they aren't inhabiting the bodies of those mannequins because that room doesn't need to be any creepier and Kim Cattrall needs to stay the hell away. Girl, no. Yep. Mm-mm. But I would watch that movie. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to find a little more about the hauntings, but couldn't without watching episodes of Ghost Hunters and such, which I just didn't have time for. Um, there's also a documentary about the hauntings called The Haunting of Fox Hollow Farms. So... Which camp do you fall in, Nicole? Do you fall? Do you think he did it, or um, do you think that you're in the non non-existent camp of Allegedly. not doing it? So here's the thing, and this is kind of funny because my Indiana true crime story is also a bit of an allegedly. Okay. But yeah, when you are the owner of a property and you find bodies on it, 
of people who went missing whilst you owned the property, mm-hmm. you most likely had something to do exactly. with it. Or you were aware of it mm-hmm. or something. So I just, I don't know. I don't buy it. I think there's too many coincidences and... Absolutely. that's There's too much going on for it not to be him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Way too much. My sources for this week are Wikipedia, talkmurderwithme.com, which I love that name. Totally. Thoughtco.com, Murderpedia, IndieStar.com. Uh, I actually didn't need too many sources this week as each website I went to seemed to have not only a plethora of information on their own, but each site said just about the same thing as this case is so well documented. So those are my only sources. All right. There's no shame in that game. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, researching that, Eden. I know, like I said before, it caught my eye, but I, I, I kept moving on because... Yeah, like I thought about doing other stories, but mm-hmm. this story, ever since the first time I heard it, has just stuck in the back of my head. Second I heard about the damn pool, I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, for sure, for And sure. I had forgotten about the bone fragments. Yeah. I uh, When you texted me like, my story involves mannequins, I'm like, uh, what the fuck now? Yeah, right? <laughs> so, yeah, totally. All right, I guess we're going to take a little break. Yeah, then we'll be back. I have a interesting paranormal story. Great. I think you'll like it. I'm sure I will. Uh, we'll, we'll chat soon. All right. See you in a few. Hey, hey guys, guys. Eden and Nicole, Nicole here. here. We wanted to let you know about the second annual Pocono Witches Festival, where Roadside Horror Show will be having their very first live show. Come join us at Split Rock Resort in Lake Harmony, Pennsylvania, for a spooky yet funny show in a haunted location. You can experience all the beauty of Lake Harmony while getting your spooky on with several events, hosted by our friend, the Pocono Witch, E. Massey. Enjoy a spooktacular event that's the third largest of its kind in the tri-state area. Take in a seance with medium Glenda Dawson. Or enjoy a paranormal investigation with Mark Keyes from TV's Paranormal 911 and Virginia Rose Centrillo from TV's The Haunted. Hungry? We've got you covered with a psychic breakfast. And you can finish it all up with a masquerade ball and maybe take part in a Samhain ritual. You can also enjoy a special guest presenter, author Christopher Penzek, as well as a live concert with Metamorph. It's all happening October 23rd to October 25th at beautiful Split Rock Resort. All of those are ticketed events, but will be at the Magical Market on Saturday, October 24th, which is completely free and open to the public. You can find nearly 100 unique vendors with all their own goodies. And of course, you'll get get to to see see us us for free. free. So come down to the Split Rock Resort and show us some love. Tickets are available now at PoconoWitchesFestival.com, where you can also find more information about the events. That's PoconoWitchesFestival.com. Come tell us your stories and listen as we tell a few of our own at our very first ever live show. Until then, guys, creep creep on on, creeping on. And we are back. We're back. I have my my story, my paranormal story. Nicole tricked me and made me do it twice because she wasn't recording the first time. I faked you out with a non-right mouse click. (laughs) Whoopsie. We're ready now, though. Yes. Mics are hot. Okay. So, today we're heading to one of the best town names I've ever heard of, French Lick. French Lick. That Oh, I know what story you're doing. I didn't look into it more so, but... I had a feeling, though, this might catch your eye. I did come across it. Yeah, I had a feeling it might catch your eye. That's part of the reason why I was like, ooh, Eden liked this story. Yeah. <laughs> and I do like that name, French Lick. Yeah, French Lick. I mean, the best town name ever still is Red Boiling Springs, in my opinion. Fair but... enough. Fair enough. 
So French Lake, Indiana, it's a town of about 1,800 residents, and it covers about two square miles, so it's pretty tiny. It's located near a natural sulfur spring and salt lick in southern Indiana. Uh, the town started as a French trading post in the early 19th century and was officially established in 1857, hence the name French Lick. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense, right? Calling things what makes sense. Good for you, Indiana. Now, pretty much since the beginning, French Lick's sulfur springs have drawn visitors who were looking to reap the water's purported medical benefits. And by the late 19th century, the area was famous as a spa town and resort. Now, another way the town commercialized its natural spring water resources, aside from offering spa treatments and things like that, was to bottle it. And it bottled it as a product called Pluto water. Pluto water. I think I've heard of that somewhere. I'd never heard of it. So I was like, what is this? Apparently, it was a best-selling laxative product. Oh. Yeah. So French Lick's water has these natural laxative properties because it has such a high volume of mineral salts like sodium and magnesium sulfate. So it creates this very potent laxative water. And it's so potent, in fact, that it would advertise itself as being effective within one hour of, in- of ingestion. God, too bad that I don't work in mental health anymore and don't have to give people laxatives. Because <laughs> po- I'd be like, I'm going to give it the old French lick. <laughs> old French lick Pluto water. So it was super popular during the 20th century, but it was discontinued in 1971 when one of the other prominent minerals in the water, lithium salts, became a controlled substance. Hey, lithium. Mm-hmm. That's something I'm very familiar with for mental health. Yeah, so it really would have been a, a great tonic. Every two weeks, you get your lithium levels checked. Ugh. So aside from being a famous resort town and laxative producer, French Lick is also known for a couple of important figures from the national basketball scene that called French Lick home. All right. The most prominent, of course, is NBA player Larry Bird, a.k.a. the Hick from French Lick. The Hick from French Lick? Yep, I've never heard his... him called that. All right. Yeah, when he was playing for the Celtics, they used to call him the Hick from French Lick. Huh. The light bulb. Uh, also, uh, former Sacramento Kings head coach and television commentator, commentator Jerry Reynolds is from French Lick as well. Now, while French Lick is a small town, it's also a pretty happening destination as far as resort areas go. Mm-hmm. During most of the 20th century, there were several resorts and casinos that opened in the area and attracted all kinds of visitors, including celebrities like boxer Joe Lewis, composer Irving Berlin spent some time in French Lake, and of course, Al Capone, because, you know, yeah. a gangster's got to go where all the happening spots are in the of Midwest. Course. And what's more happening than French Lick? Not much. The local resorts were also known for their golf courses, even hosting the PGA Championship in 1924, and today they still host PGA and LPGA events. All right. Now, our stop today is at one of these famous resorts, the French Lick Springs Hotel. Ooh. Now, today it's part of the French Lick Resort Complex, and that complex includes a former riverboat casino and another historic resort hotel, the West Baden Springs Hotel. The current French Lick Springs Hotel is on the National Register of Historic Places, and it has 443 pet-friendly guest rooms and suites with all kinds of amenities. Uh, The amenities range from the usuals like a 24-hour fitness club, gift shops, fine and casual dining options, complimentary Wi-Fi, and then some more unique offerings like a bowling alley and an arcade, riding stables, formal gardens, and of course, historical tours. So this place has everything. Yeah, pretty much everything. The original hotel was first built in the early 1840s by Dr. William Bowles, 
Uh, Dr. Bowles was a physician from nearby Paoli, Indiana. He built this three-story wooden-framed hotel with the idea of using his medical knowledge to explore the healing properties of the mineral springs in the area. The hotel primarily operated in the summer months, and it was moderately successful when it first opened in the 1840s. Now, Dr. Bowles was commissioned by the U.S. Army during the Mexican-American War, so he decided to lease the French Lake Spring Hotel to a man named John Lane. John Lane was a physician slash patent medicine salesman. Okay. Uh, and this was back before, you know, doctors were officially doctors. Like yeah. you could just call yourself a doctor if you apprentice with one. And that's pretty much this John Lane guy. Great way of doing things. Yep, absolutely. And he agreed to manage the French Lake Springs Hotel for Bowles for about five years. He agreed he would enlarge and improve the facility while he ran the hotel. Now, after Dr. Bowles returned from the war and began managing the hotel again himself in the 1850s, he sold Lane 770 acres from the northern part of the French Lake property. Lane quickly turned around and built the West Baden Springs Hotel, which then sparked a commercial rivalry between the two properties that lasted well into the 20th century. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's so shitty. But yeah. Yeah. Bowles and his family continued to own the French Lake Springs Hotel for the next couple of decades. But they primarily leased the property to other doctors to manage. So they didn't directly manage it. They just kind of owned it. Hmm. Finally, they sold the hotel in the 1880s to Hiram Wells and James Andrews, who went about rebuilding the hotel and enlarging it. They basically transformed it into a two-and-a-half-story building with a wraparound veranda in this Gothic revival style. Okay. When a fire partially destroyed the main hotel building in 1897, the French Lake Springs Hotel was renovated yet again. And this time they did it in this very large, grand, late Victorian style. Then in 1901, Thomas Taggart, who was a former Indianapolis mayor and a National Democratic Party boss, purchased the hotel along with several business partners. Must be nice to have that much money. I know. Uh, over the years that Taggart ran the hotel, he pretty much transformed it. He made it into this first-class resort by adding additional wings and this complimentary late Victorian design. So it's very, it's very beautiful hotel to this day. He built things like a huge spa wing, a bunch of grand lobbies, new guest rooms, dining rooms, ballrooms, offices, and tons of shops. Now, he also helped launch, of course, the Pluto Water brand nationwide, mm -hmm. and he improved the bottling facilities. In 1907, Taggart hired Tom Benlow to design the resort's first golf course. And the golf course that they, that they designed was considered world-class at the time. Okay. Then, about 10 years later, he hired well-known golf course designer Donald Ross to construct an addi additional courses at the resort. And Bob Ross to paint them. <laughs> All the happy trees, just kidding, they're sand traps. <laughs> uh, Taggart was also heavily involved in the National Democratic Party. And while he grew the resort, the French Lake Springs Hotel eventually developed this reputation as an unofficial headquarters for the Democratic Party. Lots of the party bigwigs would like vacation there, get spa treatments while they were discussing party business. Okay. The hotel even hosted the 1931 Democratic Governors Conference, which is the conference where Franklin Delano Roosevelt announced his intention to run for the president of the United States. So we talked about like winter White Houses and stuff, but yeah. this is kind of the equivalent, but just for the Democratic Party. Okay. When Tiger died, uh, the management of the property passed to his son, also named Tom, and the French Lake Springs Hotel 
continue to build on this reputation as the top place to go for anybody who's looking for great recreational sports like golf and horseback riding or hiking or just looking to relax and enjoy the medicinal properties of the spa. Very nice. I've never been to a spa. Uh, I've never been to a spa either. I've stayed places that have spas attached to them, but yeah. I've never had the time to in- relax in the spa. I, I just don't have time to relax, period. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Once the Great Depression and World War II hit, the hotel did start to decline. And Tigert's son eventually sold the hotel to a group of investors from New York City in 1946, who in turn sold the hotel to Sheridan Hotels in 1954. Okay. While the hotel continued to operate through the end of the 20th century, it was sold several times. And over the course of those sales, its physical condition continued to deteriorate. Then in 2005, the Cook Group purchased the hotel. Together with the support of local residents and the Historic Landmarks Foundation of Indiana, the Cook Group was able to revitalize the resort by getting approval to open a new casino on the property. Oh, it's going to bring in some money. Exactly. And that money from the casino actually helped them completely restore the French Lick Springs Hotel. So they brought it back to its Victorian glory, and then they combined it into this larger French Lick Resort casino complex, which includes the hotel, the adjacent casino, the rival hotel in the area, the West Baden Springs Hotel. Overall, the whole complex is about 2,600 acres, which is huge. Yeah. And it includes several restaurants, boutique shops, a spa, of course, conference center, multiple indoor and outdoor swimming pools, three golf courses, a bowling alley, a fitness center, stables for horses, and more than 30 miles of hiking trails. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's pretty much that place in Indiana that you can go to and get away from it and just stay on property and have a fantastic time that sounds amazing right that's what i thought too multiple swimming pools Mm -hmm. multiple swimming pools you can go for lovely hikes like fantastic that's my dream exactly and then i discovered that apparently the french lick springs hotel is also one of the most haunted places in indiana oh shit okay well i mean i assumed because we're doing a story (laughs) on it but so there's a there's lots of documented cases of weird apparitions and occurrences in the hotel over the years guests and staff have reported lots of encounters throughout the hotel especially sightings of thomas taggart so when thomas taggart appears usually it's in specific locations and a lot of people say it's because he did so much to build the hotel to what it eventually became that he's never really left yeah the two places that you most often see taggart in the hotel are the service elevator and a hallway that leads to a ballroom. Now, the service elevator is interesting. It's mostly used by employees, and employees have reported seeing unexplained mists in the area, smelling the smoky scent of pipe tobacco, like someone had just finished a pipe. Okay. They've even seen a full-body apparition of a man that matches Taggart's description, entering the elevator and then disappearing. Even weirder, they will say that the elevator behaves strangely, especially when the hotel is full and the employees are at their absolute busiest. Now, the elevator can only open and close when you press a button because it's a service elevator. So it's the idea you press the button, open it, push whatever things you need to into the elevator, and when you're ready to go, you press the elevator button again to close doors and go to your floor. Well, when the hotel's really busy, the elevator door will open and close by itself, and it's usually just long enough for employees to get into the elevator with whatever cart they're pushing, and then the doors close by themselves again without them having to press the button. So helpful, then. Yes, very yeah. helpful. 
Now, the other weird thing, too, is that the elevator will move between floors by itself at night, even though nobody's called for it, even though there's no employees in it. So people kind of think that Taggart's spirit is still trying to make sure that everything is running smoothly at the hotel. Now, the next place that people see Taggart is the hallway that connects to the hotel ballroom. According to Hotel Legend, Taggart was kind of a showboat, obviously. He was a former mayor of Indianapolis, a big party boss, you know, political bigwig. He liked to ride his horse down the hallway into the ballroom to surprise guests during big events and parties. Yeah. So some guests have heard the sound of a horse trotting down the hallway, and when they turn to look, there's nothing in the hallway. Oh, shit. Other people have actually seen a ghostly figure of a horse and a rider drifting down the hallway and disappearing into the ballroom. I don't know about you, but I'm not fond of seeing horses in hallways. No, very weird. Yeah. I had to reread that like a couple times. Be like, wait, he rode a horse in his hotel? <laughs> oh, all right. I mean, sure, whatever. Whatever floats your boat. It's your place. I mean. <laughs> exactly. The other interesting thing about the ballroom is that both employees and guests have reported hearing music, laughter, the clinking of glasses, and voices coming from the ballroom late at night. When they open the door to investigate to see what who's throwing like a raging party in the ballroom, it's completely empty. Wow. And like the noises just stop as soon as the door opens. I'm like, that's kind of spooky. Yeah. So those are the two instances of seeing Tiger at the hotel. But then there's other ghosts that people have reported seeing there, and they're Probably not quite as cheerful. A lot of guests have seen a former bellhop who was an African-American man who worked there in the early 20th century. He was reportedly very well liked among the guests and staff who worked there at the time. And he's been spotted standing by the bellhop stand several times since his death. Mostly at night when there's no bellhop scheduled for duty. Yeah, a lot of people will say they'll come down at like 3 in the morning and there'll be a bellhop on duty. And the next morning, they will notice that the man they saw also appears in pictures of the hotel staff from the early 20th century. Wow. See, I've only ever seen a full-bodied apparition like one time. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely a very unsettling uh, experience because it looks just like a regular old person. But then one minute you see them, one minute Mm -hmm. they're gone. On one of the websites I looked at was for an Indiana Paranormal Investigation Society who had done a investigation at the hotel and they actually had a photo of it and it's very odd because it's it's sort of this like very dark figure standing at the bellhop and you can see the timestamp on the photos and it's like they basically were just shooting with a digital camera one photo there's a guy there the very next photo which is like a minute later he's gone so it's very uh, and the investigator who had the camera said that there was no one there the entire time so it was odd when they looked back at the photos that there was someone standing there okay kind of unnerving for sure yeah. and it's a full body it's like definitely a person standing there yeah that's very weird the other areas of the hotel that are haunted in what i think is a slightly more sinister fashion are the sixth and seventh floors employees have reported for years that they'll receive calls from unoccupied rooms on these floors oh great yeah how annoying is that you're working the front desk late at night and you get a call from six six oh two and you pick up and either the line's dead or you pick up and you hear like heavy breathing. Oh, here I was thinking it was going to be like, oh, yeah, can I get a cheeseburger? Center room 403, <laughs> thanks. I'm cold. I need a blanket. Yeah. But instead, it's just some purr of heavy breathing. Exactly. God. And if, like, if they, they get calls and they keep getting repeated calls from this room, a couple employees have stories where they would get repeated calls from certain rooms on these floors and they would send someone out to check. 
and sometimes the rooms wouldn't even have a phone installed. Wow. Yeah, super creepy, right? That's, ooh, I don't like that. The seventh floor especially has a nasty reputation, too. So aside from, like, the creepy phone calls, there's a specifically haunted room. Supposedly, in the mid-20th century, a man hung himself in the room. A short time later, another guest who was in the room, a young bride, killed herself in the room's bathtub. Oh. Employees have reported seeing red blood-like stains on the bathroom tile and the tub. They'll scrub the stains away, and after a few days or even weeks, they'll reappear. Oh, out damn spot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Little Lady Macbeth going on. Yeah. Makes you wonder how bad that new husband was. Yeah. Now, the cleaning crew in the hotel also hates these floors. Uh-oh. They refuse to clean the sixth and seventh floor unless they have a partner to clean it with. Uh-oh. <laughs> and this is because several times members of the cleaning staff have been on the sixth floor especially, and they've been completely alone. And as they're going about their duties cleaning the rooms, they'll see shadows moving up and down the hallway. Ooh, nope. Yep, nope. They'll hear footsteps walking behind them. When they turn around, no one's there. <sighs> they'll hear a woman's laughter throughout the floor when there's no guests on the floor. And they'll also feel cold breezes rush in and out of rooms, seemingly Damn. from nowhere. So they refuse to clean by themselves, which I am like, I don't mm-hmm, blame them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For reals. I understand why the French Lake Springs Hotel has this reputation for being the most haunted yeah. resort slash hotel in Indiana. But it still sounds kind of cool. It does sound cool. I'd still go. Yeah, you'd stay there? Oh, yeah. I, I would stay there, but maybe I would stay at the West Baden Springs Hotel. But apparently there's also weird occurrences there. Oh. I didn't look too too deeply into them because they seem to be kind of like your normal old building. Like, You're, oh, there's weird there's weird drafts and noises at night. Yeah. I'm like, well, it's also a 100-year-old building. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I thought it was extremely like creepy, oh, the yeah. occurrences in that hotel. That does sound creepy. But yeah, so that's the French Lick Springs Hotel. That was fun. I liked it a lot, and I definitely would stay there. Yeah. D- it's still operational and yep. everything? Yep. And do they still have all the amenities that they had? Yep, they still have all the amenities. Of course, now there's like COVID-19 restrictions. Oh, yeah. So they I'm don't not have like... about going anytime soon. They don't have but... live shows or anything, but it's apparently a pretty great place too because of the casino they have like live shows and you eat dining you get bored you can like you know waste a little money gambling maybe one day we'll get a live show there nicole Ooh. we can dream from the sixth floor yes <laughs> my sources for this story were wikipedia mental floss frenchlick.com only in your state.com indiestar.com and indianaparanormal.com so i guess that's it for this week huh i guess it is and you know if i ever do go to that hotel mm-hmm I plan to call down and just <laughs> into the mic, into the microphone, sure, into the phone. You monster. I know. Then you're going to order that cheeseburger. And I will order a cheeseburger. And a blanket. And a, bl- a cheeseburger and a blanket. <gasps> it's like pigs in a blanket, but better. I agree. It's a hamburger surprise. Yes. Um, all right, gang. If you liked our stories today, if you want to say, hey, how's it going? We're bored and we want to hear more of this type of story, more of that type of story. You can do we that. We love you. We hate you. Whatever yeah. you want to say. We'll, we'll listen at least. Yeah. Uh, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Or check us out on our social media accounts. You can find us at Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram or at Roadside Horror on Twitter. Uh, if you have a moment out of your day, feel free to rate and review us on the podcatcher of your choice. It always helps to 
rate our show so that other folks can more easily find us. It would definitely not hurt for you to tell your friends about us because we need more listeners. We have been getting a little bit of more listenership now, so I guess kudos to you guys because I'm sure you're the ones that are doing it. So thank you for that. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Design for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. So until next time, guys, creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on. Thank you.